Hey everybody, Brian McCumber here with Tech Money Talks. I am really excited today because we have a very special guest on the podcast. We are fortunate to have Sean Livermore as a special guest on the show. And if you don't know who he is, then you're missing out big time because he's the author of a best-selling book, Average Joe, Be the Silicon Valley Tech Genius. Sean snuck into the tech industry and discovered the path to startup success. Sean repeated this process for himself, creating multiple successful startups. So if you're interested in starting a digital business, you better save this episode in your back pocket and listen to it over and over again, because the stories and the tips you're going to learn here will give you the opportunity to quickly launch your own business to help your wallet grow fat. Sean took a complex business of tech startups and simplified it into an easy to follow formula. Creating your own app and raising investment capital is not as hard as it seems if you know what steps to follow. Sean is one person that has dispelled the myths and to help you avoid the traps. The foundations are the same secrets behind some of the greatest startups, such as Snapchat, Slack, Uber, Groupon, and many others. I tell you, time is money, and everyone's looking to get a piece of his time, and I'm so happy to have him on the show today. John, thanks for joining us, man. How's it going? Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me, man. Doing great. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Well, glad to have you on the show for sure, and I tell you, this is actually bringing, you know, the, the tech side of the tech business, which is really awesome because I think a lot of people need to learn how to tap into different aspects of, of online business and having uh, technology being one of them. And I think you have a, a great background and experience to be able to speak to that. So I think it's going to be a very, very great episode. One of the first on the podcast. So I think it's going to be really awesome. But I would say for the audience, maybe we could take a step back and you can kind of share your journey, how you got into, into business. Into business or into the tech industry? In the tech industry, tech business, yeah. Well, I've been in the tech industry for 21 years. I started as a software developer and I had an entrepreneurial fire in the belly, as they say. And so yeah. even, even as a developer kind of working the cubicle farm of corporate America, doing my part to crunch code, I began to think about what consulting really looks like and, and how to broaden my horizons around that. And so I, I became a consultant and then uh, looked at the startup field, had some ideas, developed a few products and raised seed money six times on different startups and was a sink or swim thrown into the water, if you will, of, of how to make it work, how to build a company, how to build a team, how to impress investors, how to how to fail, how to pick yourself back up and do it again. <laughs> and then uh, launching another consulting company and, and coming into my 40s, uh, Product Perfect is the name of my software custom consulting company at productperfect.com. And, and then writing that book, Average Show, uh, just hit the Amazon top 10 best selling list. So excited about that. And the audio book's coming out in January. And so we just learned that uh, someone bought the rights to the Chinese edition. So we're excited about that and hoping to get the word out about how anyone can go from average Joe to tech genius. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And it actually kind of reminds me, like, have you ever seen the movie uh, Dodgeball? And yeah. The average Joe's Gym. So what inspired the, the name, the title of the book there? <laughs> when I hear average Joe's, I'm thinking average Joe's Gym. Then, yeah, that's great. Uh, ben, <laughs> ben, ben Stiller is a genius and... Owen Wilson. Oh man. The, the, 
premise of the book inspired the title. And the premise is, is that there's this binary test where am I or am I not an Elon Musk? Am I or am I not this tech mm-hmm. genius, right? This, this theory, this myth of the great man theory, as uh, Thomas Carlyle in 1840, he came up with this theory that, that men are to be worshipped, people are to be worshipped, right? That, that everyone seeks, humanity seeks uh, the demigods out there to worship and that we constantly position ourselves in a, in a posture of seeking out and testing and experimenting on that thesis of do I fit or do I not fit into this persona of iconoclast of, of what it means to be and fill in the blank, whatever that industry might be. And for tech, it's even more true because the media splashes these names and faces all over the place, right? And you hit, you have Elon standing in front of Starship, you know, in the background and then rockets are taking off and falling, you know, and then people are writing code and he walks through and says, you're fired, you know, and there's this, all this power and the head trips, you know, Zuckerberg controlling the election with uh, fake news or not fake news, you know, Jack Dorsey is, is tagging Donald Trump's tweets with this may be false information, right? So tech is sort of kind of the big dog right now. And, and yeah. people, people want to be that guy, you know, they want to be that tech genius. And so the average Joe is uh, just kind of what my publisher Wiley had come up with to say, no, you don't want to focus on the tech genius idea. You want to really hit that notion of we're all just that average Joe. So it kind of, it evolved a little bit as a title and landed on that. Yeah, it's really awesome because I think, you know, for a lot of people listening, I mean, I think they're kind of in the same boat where, you know, maybe they they have an idea or they're looking to get something off the ground. And I was wondering if you, if you could maybe even share your journey, like even some of the, the startups that you started, you know, paint that picture. What was it like when you actually, you know, started shifting from being a consultant to, you know, you're working on your first startup and some of the, the challenges and, you know, how, how did that experience go? It's very different to be a startup founder. When you're mm-hmm. a consultant or you're in the tech industry, just writing code, you're, you're, you know, people who are listening right now, if you're not in the tech industry, you may think of programming or code or tech as this far off, you know, mysterious land of wonder. And how do they do that? You know, it's so complicated, but in essence, it's very procedural. You go to college, you learn how to write software, you, you build upon layer upon layer of, of your learning, and then you become that thing, that, that profession. When yeah. you move from a consulting where you're expected to both have great communication skills, at least most consultants are, I wouldn't say for all, but, and also highly proficient technical skills, you move on from that cubicle to more the boardroom. When you go to startups, it's uh, from the boardroom to, I would say, the living room and you know, on the couch with your, your MacBook and you're, you're hacking your way into a new Fourier. You're, you're proving to the world that, that your idea has a right to live, has a right to exist. And mm-hmm. that is somewhat of a protagonist journey. I think there's something very poetic about it. It, it you, people fall in love with it. It's very emotionally driven. The, the amygdala part of our brain is fired up, and I don't think it's always very rational, right? So that's why we have business accelerators and tech stars and Y Combinator and so forth, so that the rational investor, the banker, if you will, can meet the dreamer. And when banker meets dreamer, they collide, and the two worlds kind of eventually fall into a place of compromise where the dreamer realizes he has a lot to learn and the banker realizes that there may be a way to make that dream happen. So startups are a different animal, but. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, even within current times, I mean, a lot of things has happened, especially over this past year. 
And I think there's quite a few people that are kind of falling into that boat where, you know, they were laid off, but they have this idea that they're looking to get off of the ground. Like, you know, what would you recommend to those individuals that are just like really ground floor looking to get things going? Ground floor startup wise? Yeah. You know, I think the best advice would be to learn as much as you can and to work your subject matter. We all can be experts at very specific niche topics. In the book, Average Joe, I talk about sustainable mystique and I introduce a a thought and communication framework that's a triad. It's a triangle of three sides that allows you to communicate whatever your subject matter is in the most prolific and effective way. And so with that sustainable mystique, you too can be just like Blackbeard when the pirate would uh, jump on the ship, he'd have burning sulfur in his beard and it would smoke around and the, and the, the rest of the, the ship he was commandeering would give up because they were just terrified, right? Because of his presentation, because of his, his demeanor and his approach, mm-hmm. uh, there really was an advantage. And you can have that advantage. You can position yourself with the right words, with the right angle, with the right niche, with the most interesting problem, articulate speech, and a narrow focus. And those three pieces, along with some other elements around that, can bubble up your subject matter to the top where you can hope to achieve fascination at the top. And so on the website uh, for the book, averagejoetechgenius.com, you can click around and, and check out the animations and the videos there, and it kind of brings to life what I'm describing. But I would say the, the get started moment, get around the right people. Proximity is a great replacement for luck. If you're proximal to other people who really are great, get get the smartest, most talented, most effective, most prolific tech or design folks or business or sales. Get around that crew and and create a, a community around that or join their community, and you'll find yourself in the better room. You know. Yeah. So I'm I'm based out of Chicago, and we had a pretty big like. Uh, incubator startup space. And I would even operate my podcast out of there. But fast forward to today with with COVID, that type of like, you know, open gathering space has has been closed basically because of COVID. Mm -hmm. What's been some of the shifts, you know, now currently? So like, you know, because some of those gatherings and incubator startup spaces are, you know, now closed because of the current times, you know, what are, what are some of the changes? Have, have you seen any changes like that? And what are they doing to, to try to collaborate like that? I think COVID has really shifted a lot of things. I think our mindset and, you know, who, where we are, where we're going, what we're doing, how and why we're raising money, why we're not raising money, mm-hmm. how much money's being raised, you know, what startups are taking off, what are, which ones are just languishing, right? There's, a, there's an enormous difference for people and how they were acting before and after. And I think it's going to continue to be a distributed workforce. I think um, big tech is learning that they don't have to pay Los Angeles rates. They can hire folks and uh, outside of the first, it starts with big city, then you go to suburbs and now they're realizing, oh my God, let's go 2000 miles away. We'll cut salaries in half in 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Hey, that guy in India ain't so bad. Let's hire some folks offshore and let's build the software differently. And I think in consulting, you you see that quite a bit in software development paradigms. The world is fairly flat and money moves as quickly as the internet can move it. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that shift of labor is going to continue to happen. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And yeah, one of the things that I did pick up on uh, in, in kind of uh, going through the 
core components of the book, which was, it's, it seems like you tap into what most people call like the emotional intelligence of there. And one of the things that, that I was looking at was uh, what you referred to as the, as the mindless work ladder. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain that for the audience. Mm-hmm. Mindless work ladder is a great tool that allows you to slow create. It's, it's, the, it's one of the pivotal and, and essential elements of the slow create framework. And the slow create framework is a, a thought, creativity, and ideation framework that I developed with help from a neuroscientist professor, a PhD, Jesse Risman out of UCLA. Wow. We spent a lot of time building out this framework. And basically, it allows you to plot out on a canvas all of the ideation cycles and data that you're working with. And that canvas thing can be stacked as you get multiple canvases, one canvas for each problem you're trying to solve or or idea you're trying to work through. So whether it's the logo for your brand, whether it's the actual fundamental essence of your startup, whether it's you know a financial instrument you're considering for investment, whether it's the gift you're thinking of buying your wife or, or husband, or whatever you might be thinking through or trying to solve, you plot that out on a canvas, filling out all the boxes, kind of like the business model canvas, if you've ever seen that. And then for each one, you put them on the wall. And then as you get more of them, you can stack them in a pipeline. So the pipeline artifact allows them all to be in one view. And you know you can tape it on the wall behind your monitors. You can look at it. You can update it. I have a Google Calendar alert every Friday at 4.30, update your pipeline. So I go through all the things my mind is working through and I update them with new information, plotting out any nibbles that I've had along the way. And the mindless work ladder is that tool in the middle that bridges the gap between the unsolved and the nibbles of synthesis. And what it does is you're baiting the hook, this idea that that neuroscientists have that when you go into this uh, daydreaming, drifting state, the part of your brain called the executive control network switches off. And the, the background thread, the default mode network flips on and it lights up under fMRI scans. And so the neuroscientists say that 60 to 80% of the energy that our brains consume is consumed by the default mode network. That's a lot. Yeah. What is it doing? What is it doing? We don't know. It's connecting. It's synthesizing. And it's not only interacting with just a few parts of your brain. It's really the tentacles go out to quite a bit. And so you're filling in gaps. And so the, there really isn't any, we looked, and uh, he's very familiar with the industry and, and the science of it, uh, expert level. And there is no real accessible framework for, for neuroscience. It's, like, it's not like you can dabble in neuroscience. I mean, you can if you read a mindfulness magazine or you know, you, you pick up some of this material that's very consumer friendly. Yeah. But how can you really engage with it, right? How can you take, you know, the lean methodology with Eric Reese and some of the other frameworks that are out there of, of startup land mm-hmm. and apply neuroscientists to that? It's it's not really common. And so we wanted to build, I wanted to build something that would that would do that, that would help us to ideate through those brick walls and to take all that's in here and put it out into paper and then ideate on that and iterate on that until I find breakthrough. And so the ladder is an acronym that stands for let go with the L, antenna, drift, daydream, uh, E is emerge, and R is recharacterize. And so you let go, you become an antenna, you drift off, you daydream, you come back from that session or that episode, could be 10 to 40 minutes long, and then you recharacterize the problem and you're thinking back like, oh my gosh, you know what, I think I'm going to try X, Y, Z. I think I got something here. We call that a nibble. 
And a lot of people look for those big C creativity moments where uh, like in the book in chapter two, we talk about, or chapter three, we talk about creativity. There's this fraudulent letter that was written uh, back. It was supposedly written by Mozart, but it was actually a fraud by Otto Vaughn. And the letter says, hey, you know, there's these, these songs that I write, they all come to me at once. It's very spontaneous and it happens all at once. And, I, and, and it rarely differs from what is played to what came into my mind at that one moment. The final result is almost exactly the same as what came into my mind, meaning there's no iteration. There's no rework. There's no scribbles. I'm not tearing things up and throwing them away. I'm Mozart. I'm a genius, right? <laughs> that, that letter proliferated for hundreds of years. Everyone loves the letter because they think, ah, that must be what it is. Let's all, you know, pay homage to that. And we're not that. So I guess we can't create and we shouldn't start that company. But the reverse is true. Mozart actually scribbled all over the place. He threw all kinds of stuff away. He was crumbling up papers. His wife kept a collection of them. And then they got certified and laid out in this museum. And you can go touch them and look at them behind glass in Europe. It, it's quite encouraging, actually, to see a genius scribble something out and saying, needs more development. You know? <laughs> he literally wrote that. And they had some uh, personal diaries uh, from Einstein. And Einstein got stuck on all kinds of stuff, you know, and he's doing crosswords. And he's, he's doing, um, they were trying to say, well, what is this complex math? Is this relativity? Turns out it was some random silly puzzle he found in a newspaper uh, that he was trying to solve a puzzle. It was just like a, a children's puzzle and he was playing around. He was just kind of doodling. And I think it gives hope to a lot of us. So the latter allows you to systematically apply neuroscience, neuroscience in, in a way that anyone, uh, your grandmother, your children, you, any age, anyone can adopt this framework and apply it and, and find breakthrough in their ideation cycles. That's awesome. Yeah, because I think I did, even speaking of Einstein, like, I remember catching a documentary on him and they would say that he would conduct these thought experiments. So as he was contemplating these things and he would say Einstein's, you know, doing these thought experiments to like visualize things. And what it, what it sounds like is like, um, you know, the latter, the acronym, what you laid out here is almost how to, how to get into your own thought experiment based on what you're planning to work on. Is that a way to maybe describe what, what the ladder does for people? Yeah, I would say so. It, it, it's, a, it's a systematic way of stepping into it. Yeah, yeah. So when you're taking a shower, when you're doing what we call mindless work tasks, right? So everyone's yeah. doing these things on a regular basis, right? You're, you're just kind of wandering around, you know, walking to lunch or whatever it might be. And your brain shuts off and you, you begin to, to curiously leverage your time. Um, you're not in full control, you're in partial control. And uh, Ms. Professor Risman calls it zero control, but he then references some uh, papers that maybe 10%, you know, there, there's a little bit of a give there. And you're directing traffic, you're, the water's flowing through your hands, but you're not exactly cupping it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So things are happening and you're just kind of more of a, a spectator and your brain's taking over. But that procedural process, oh yeah, I need to become an antenna. Oh, okay. Just enjoy the shower, man. It's a hot water. Just enjoy that moment and just kind of drift off and, you know, uh, let it fill the, the room with, with steam and you're just kind of hang out and, and your brain is just going to be solving those problems. Yeah. And you're going to think of me, you're going to think of me and, and buy the book and check <laughs> it out and, and become an expert at it every time you do that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Think of you in the shower. Yeah. But uh, but what you're describing is is actually pretty good. And and I've read things and thought about it in, in so many different ways, which is is kind of like you're sort of trying to intentionally program your subconscious. So if you if you give your subconscious a directive or something that you're trying to solve, and with the latter, it sounds like what you what you're describing is like, okay, you give yourself, you know, a problem to solve, a challenge or something like that. You lay it out to your subconscious, and then now you go through this ladder to allow, how did you describe it? Mindless, what did you call it? Mindless work ladder. It's mindless tasks. Yeah, mindless tasks. So your body's going through this mindless task, but your subconscious is actually cranking along without you even consciously thinking about it. Then all of a sudden, boom, these ideas just all of a sudden, just like the answer comes out or, you know, a great idea comes out. I was wondering if you could... Uh, talk more about that. Yeah. So sometimes the idea that that synthesis, that nibble is the epiphany, you know, ah, man, I've been working on that for a year. You know, there it is. I figured it out. And sometimes most of the time though, it, it really isn't. It's a, it's a minuscule detail that gets further refined. Mm. So you, we, we have thesis and hypothesis that we develop and we precondition our thinking and when your brain resets, when you go to sleep, people say the famous phrase, well, I'm going to sleep on it, right? Well, what do they mean by that? Well, it actually <laughs> means a lot. By sleeping on it, your brain re- drains toxins when you sleep. We all know this. I'm not sharing any new information here. I'm just recharacterizing it in, in context. But as you drain and as you re- refresh, you wake up and in the morning, you have the proper brain chemistry to have the most effective work. That's why a lot of people love to do their artwork in the morning, to, to read in the morning, or do something effective in the morning because it it really is an optimal state scientifically. Now, depending on the person, they may feel otherwise. But the mindless work that you do and the aha moments that you do are brain-driven. And our brain sometimes needs to... I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not trying to be a neuroscientist. I'm not trying to pretend like I'm one. I I just learned a lot. I feel like I have a master's degree in this stuff because of all the time. I mean, 100,000 words, 400 pages in 18 months with three researchers on our team and a neuroscientist at the helm to help us. It's a lot of work toward the same and and very acutely, narrowly focused on folks in the tech industry. So it was a very exciting project to work on. And... We just, we, we saw these little nibbles of synthesis. It was, uh, you know, they asked participants in these studies before they went in the MRI machines, what were you thinking, you know, when you, when you zoned out? We were looking at their brain while they were zoning out, right? And they're like, well, I was thinking about the, the mortgage, the kids, the house, my job, and then this one project I worked on. And they're just it's scanning. It's like a server farm, just scanning through all the various different elements that, that need to be solved, right? And so that's why we developed that pipeline in the canvases so that you can kind of systematically list them out and then let the brain scan through them. You know, it's almost like baiting the hook, truly. And and if you're a database developer or software developer out there, it, it's almost like you're populating your database, right? Your tables are getting populated with data so that the index can take place mm-hmm. and the brain is indexing, constantly indexing. Yeah. And is there a way to kind of, prioritize like what it seems like what you know what do you seem to focus on or or the stuff that you deeply focus on before you drift off into I guess if we call it that mindless state you know then it, it seems like you know your subconscious kind of like working to answer those things 
right? Baiting the hook. That's called right? baiting so, the hook. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of what they call it. And and um, famous writers and film producers will tell you that they'll read a chapter and then they'll go on a walk, right? Uh, artists, musicians, they'll they'll play a few notes and then they'll go take a swim. And it just depends on your your mental state and how you approach. Uh, your mindless work, but they've been, people have been doing this for years. They just didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> they didn't know that what they were doing was practicing systematic neuroscience, right? So yeah. I think the, the way to bait the hook, uh, according to Professor Risman, as we talked about this very specific topic, is not so deliberate. If you tell your brain, figure out this one problem, it's not going to figure it out. You know, it's like trying to... Uh, trying to curtail a group of cats or what do they say to herding cats, right? You're, you, you, it's a little more subtle than that. I think listing them out and making sure that they're top of mind is, is just the, the basic premise of it. And then letting go. Yeah. Letting go. And things that are meant to be solved, typically your brain will make progress on it if you have enough subject matter to work with. Um, if you're just not solving something in a specific canvas or pipeline, you just you might want to go revisit your data. You might want to revisit your patterns, your details, your secrets, all the subject matter that you work on on a regular basis. Maybe you don't have enough peripheral information. Maybe you haven't expanded beyond your bubble, your context, Mm. right? And see who else can speak into that and then bait the hook again and see what comes. Yeah. And is is there something to the degree of like, you know, getting distracted or cloudy? Like I hear... Uh, a lot of people that will talk about, you know, kind of the degree of focus and and as if they're more heavily focused and reducing the distractions, does that have an impact as far as the type of, uh, you know, quality of results that you get back out of that? I think the focus of, of you mean like the narrowness of your yeah, focus? Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I think if you're too broad... Hey, let me solve global warming. You know, it's probably not going to get a nibble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you're a scientist working in a lab with a specific sample and you're applying proteins and, you know, there's a very narrow uh, focus of effort, you know, there, there's a polling mechanism, P-O-L-L-I-N-G, polling. And in software development, we use that to describe a term that means the code is going to wait five seconds or 10 seconds or whatever interval. And it'll go check and say, is there new information? Yes or no. Is there an email for me? Yes or no. For example, from your phone. And polling is something your brain does as well. Is, is it intervals? It checks and says, does this idea that I just learned apply to problem number one? No. Oh, does it apply to problem number two? No. And so forth. And it iterates through an index list of problems and it tries to apply that. Now, I'm speaking uh, somewhat as a novice here. I'm, uh, again, I'm a software consultant. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm repeating and rephrasing the learning that I had. So with that caveat in mind, I I speak of polling and and the common sense neuroscience behind it. But I think that the narrowness definitely applies. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to know. And so even so like taking it back to, to business and so say if, if people, you know, have an idea and in most cases they're looking to, fulfill a need, fill a gap, solve a problem, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, what it seems like, you know, applying this type of emotional intelligence, the purpose of that is, is, uh, will be to do what, to kind of like have a a greater result or something that didn't exist before. I think it's to overcome and 
and to finish and to complete and to solve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it depends. I mean, uh, we talk about flow in the book, you know, when people get into this uh, magical uh, soaring kind of uh, greased wheels moment of, of consciousness, when you're playing a song, you can play for hours and time just flies by you're coding and you have your headphones on and you just kind of zone out. But in the book, we talk about how it's unreliable. Flow is not the goal and flow is not required for success. Uh, for ideation, for creativity. Um, There's a great quote by Stephen King, another one by Stephen Pressfield, two amazing prolific writers. King says, amateurs sit and wait for inspiration, but the rest of us just get up and go to work, right? Mm. And that's kind of how it works, isn't it? You you have to fight. Uh, Another uh, Stephen Pressfield, (laughs) he talks about resistance. Uh, He's an amazing writer, a guy who pressed through uh, near poverty. I think he had so many different careers. He was like a four or five different phases of his life. And he kept pounding away at this keyboard and um, a cat kind of jumped around in a small little place he was living. And he was like, what am I doing with my life? You know, but he talks about the grind and resistance, capital R resistance, and that we all have this resistance we fight. Right. And he has this great, quote, he says, the most important thing about art is work. The most important thing about art is work and the daily grind. And I know there's a lot of people like Gary Vee and others who say, keep pounding, keep grinding, just keep going. But that doesn't always work. And you can grind your way in, you know, straight to death. I mean, people in Japan are falling over from working too hard. In fact, they have a, a, a word for it. When people die from work, there's an actual Japanese word for that thing. <laughs> it's sad, <laughs> Ter- terribly sad. But illumination is post-keystroke, right? So you have to enter the waters before they part. And I think the work that we do is uh, uh, numbers 24-7 in the Bible, actually, is a, a great reference when the Hebrews said, Asa Shema, by doing, we will understand. By doing, we will understand. Mm. And I think that's powerful for startups. You know, you, you iterate, period. Yeah. You iterate, period. You know, it's kind of an ironic thing that I, I made up there, but it's uh, absolute. Iteration is absolute, right? That's really good. And one of the things that comes to mind is, is uh, what about when it comes to self-doubt? So say, you know, the, the startup... You know, and I, I see this happens. People sometimes, you know, quit way too soon, you know, before they reach anything, mm-hmm. they, they start something, but then they, they give up. And part of it has to do with the level of self-doubt and, you know, the direction their head has went. If you could kind of speak to that and how that plays into mm-hmm. everything. Well, it's premise in, in part of the, the foundation of the book is um, if I'm not a great man with something more, as Thomas Carlyle kind of described it in in his uh, thesis, then I don't deserve to be in the room. And a great man or great woman, a great person, I should say, properly, a great person with something more. What is that something more? Well, it could be anything. Uh, Charles Dickens would go to Thomas Carlyle's London cottage and knock on the door and be mentored by Thomas Carlyle, Charles Dickens, of course, the greatest novelist of the Victorian era. And he wrote 
so many wonderful pieces, but he would follow around in a British accent with a, a friendly smile and he would placate and listen and ask questions and look up to this towering figure of Thomas Carlyle. Dickens was a little shorter uh, in his mid five feet. Uh, Carlyle was well over six feet tall and a, and a much more domineering presence, a much more know-it-all kind of atmosphere. And he would continue to go to that person. And, and if we could ask Dickens, don't, you know, Dickens's work and his life effort far su- uh, surpassed Carlyle, uh, his intelligence, his capability, but he would knock on the door. Why did he knock? Why was he say, why was he carrying around Carlyle's book and reading it hundreds of times? Some people said, because he was not the tech genius, right? He was, he was just the average Joe. And, and so the mental capacities and the, and the strange hangups that we have mentally will, will completely destroy us. And if only we could go back, I read, I read in the end of the book, kind of spoiling it for the reader, but uh, if you're not going to buy it, then uh, go ahead and listen. If you are going to buy it, then skip ahead. Don't listen to what I'm about <laughs> to say. So at the end of the book, I talk about like, well, if you could stop Dickens, I, get, I don't know if it's that profound at all, but I thought it was good. Whatever. Uh, if you could stop Dickens when he was knocking on the door, say, hey, dude, wait, um, check it out. Before you go up to the door there, I want to tell you something. You're going to be the guy. You're going to be the dude, right? You're going to be the greatest novelist of the Victorian era. He'd probably smile and say, you know, cheerio, thank you, have a great day in a, in a very friendly, polite British way. But he'd turn around and he'd knock on the door and he'd go back to the great man with something more. He'd go back to the person who has the thing, who has the, the magic dust, right? Who inspires. And so we just can't stop knocking is really the point of the book. We can't help ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, uh, and then with that, so like, you know, say even as we take it to more like, you know, practical advice for like the audience as they're starting something, something up and that self-doubt begins to creep in. You know, what's some of the things like, I think part of it, you know, you know, what are some of the, you know, the reasons why they quit is because, you know, they're doubting themselves. Now they're wondering if they're headed in the wrong direction. And then maybe they even have a shiny object syndrome where they see something else over there. So they give up what they feel like is going in the wrong direction and jump onto something new. But now they're starting from ground zero all over again. And they seem to be repeating that same pattern. I see that happen to far too many people. Yeah, tragic. <laughs> but but I, I feel like learn by doing. And, yeah. and I kind of think Eric Reese with the Lean Startup has has triggered a fail fast, fail early, fail often. Mm-hmm. Learn from it, get back up, try again. And, and so if you're putting multiple years into your startups, you're doing it wrong probably, I would say, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. If you're spending multiple months in your startup and failing, stopping, trying something out or iterating, you're probably doing it right, generally speaking, right? Yeah. Not to say it all works that way. Some things take many years, but it's an agile, it's an iterative process. There, there really is a tough tough road for the waterfall waterfall of course being that that methodology of you know building up all this groundswell working for years on an idea mm-hmm. don't tell your fam- friends and family about your idea or they'll steal your idea you know you're you're really in a sandbox man that everybody else is growing up and moving on and iterating and working together yeah and you're stuck over there in the elementary school sandbox you need to get out of that and put on your big boy pants and 
you know, learn how to share information, iterate on ideas, team up with others and build and iterate. And um, the, the, the waterfall approach for startups rarely works well. However, I will say this, that um, the slow create framework and the ability to process, parse through, iterate, and work through your ideas systematically over time allows you to spawn off those little bursts of activity, right? So you have a garden, you're watering it, mm-hmm. you're planting various uh, items in your garden. Some are going to, you know, you're going to get some tomatoes on this month of the year. You're going to get some sprouts of this other type of vegetable on this month of the year, and you're patient for the other ones. And you, you just plant your seeds and you water them and you work through your your ideation cycles and if you're curating your mind and you're a good caretaker of your of your intellectual capacities and, and your work, your subject matter, the work of your hands, yeah, then you're probably going to sprout something, right? You're probably going to get a hit, you know? Yeah, because it seems like there, you know, there should be some level of progression. So, like along the way, they should be measuring some key performance indicators and some level of progression. And like you're describing that iterative approach of, okay, you know, do check the results and evaluate and, and just kind of repeat that process over again. So it, it um, so yeah. in describing that, like, you know, what would you recommend to the person that's okay so that they're not giving up too soon? What are some of the things they should be doing? I think uh, we should take time off of our day jobs and invest in our daydreams. I think that making time is very difficult to do, but we make time for all sorts of things. Um, I think we need to make time to think more skillfully and test our thoughts, test our theories and our thesis out with valued, valued uh, friends, companions, loved ones, and investors and mentors. I think opening up our our mindset and being proximal to those who have done it before and really getting them to weigh in and, and, and tell you the hard truth. Um, but, but keeping a focus that is very narrow on the subject matter that, that, that you really know, well, there's a great potter who, who said the first, they asked him, well, how do you get good and how long does it take to become an expert? And Malcolm Gladwell made famous in his various books. Yeah. Uh, the outliers, the tipping point, et cetera. And he, he of course, helped to make famous the 10,000-hour rule, approximately seven years or whatever. It takes that long to become an expert at something, right? To, to be mastercraft. Um, but the potter, I think, spelled it out even in better when he said the first 10,000 pots or the first 20,000 pots, I need to look it up, but are the hardest. Uh, first 10,000 pots are the hardest. Uh, after that, it gets easier. And Warren McKenzie is 70 years working in pottery. I mean, this guy is a legend. Um, but I, I, I do think it takes 10,000 pots. I mean, you, you really are investing in a lifelong process, but it's additive, right? Every layer, yeah. every layer of your, of your craft, of your career, of your, of your consulting or development or design or whether it's marketing or funnels or sales or whatever you're working on e-commerce platforms and Shopify that transfers over to the next new thing. And, you know, you really are able to transliterate that over and, and, and shift value. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm, I kind of view it as, you know, in a form of like 
compounding. So a lot of the skill sets mm-hmm. and the activities and things that we're learning, they came to build up upon each other. And as things continue to evolve, um, and that actually has me curious, it's like, um, like related to uh, keeping yourself on the edge. So even as, you know, technology trends are, are changing and things like that, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you're doing from, from that standpoint to, to, to keep yourself on the edge? Right. I mean, it's a practice, it's a rigor. It's also about calibrating your career so that you're actually working on the right projects. Mm -hmm. A lot of people take jobs because, well, it's close to my house and it pays well. Well, but is it moving you forward? Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or do you get out of bed with energy toward that goal? At least most of the time I, I recognize that any job, even in tech or even in any, whatever it might be that excites you may not always excite you. There might be a 40 to 60% ratio, maybe 50, 50, maybe 80, 20, it just depends on your tolerance for that boredom factor or that drudgery. Right. But I think there should be a level of energy you derive from doing the work you do. And if you don't, I'd say maybe think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that, that just came to mind. So with the, with the latest project that you're working on, the uh, product perfect, I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could uh, help explain what that is. Product perfect is my consulting company. We provide custom software development for enterprise clients and fortune companies as well as small and mid-sized companies so we're based out of southern california but have folks around the world and we we like to do modernization projects take legacy mainframe systems or uh old systems and and put a fresh skin on those and and redevelop those as and porting them over to the enterprise modern platforms of today but um you know, that pays the bills and continues to grow. And I'm excited about that and yeah. looking to put a podcast together for that soon called the perfect product. So be on the lookout for that. Awesome. But, um, yeah, we really try to craft beautiful products, SaaS products, dashboards, front end user experiences for corporate customers that, that have a wow factor. So, but that's that slowcreate.com is for the slow create framework. Average Joe tech genius.com is for the book. Awesome. Um, yeah, we'll be sure to leave uh, links to that in, in the show notes. And what is what is the best way for the for the audience to follow you if they wanted to stay in touch? Well, I'm on Twitter on Shawnee Pants and S H A W N Y P A N T S and uh, LinkedIn forward slash Sean Livermore. Yeah, but uh, AverageJoeTechGenius.com is probably the best. Oh, that's awesome, man. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And uh, just, man, really great stuff. And even stuff related to tech. So, like, what are your thoughts on, like, uh, like where do you see stuff in, in the cloud platforms going? So, like, I mean, AWS still has, like, you know, big, big market share. Um, you got uh, Google Cloud Platform trying to trying to get somebody to, to, to work on their on their platform. And and Azure, you know, trying to, so I was wondering, well, what are your thoughts as far as the direction of the cloud platforms and, and where things are going there? I think that um, there's been a lot of people writing about enterprise cloud hosting. Google has had an interesting run. They've, they've uh, closed down some of their enterprise products, much to the dismay of a lot of the enterprise customers. And so 
larger companies, at least my clients, this is what I've experienced. I can't speak for uh, the world at large, but my clients have made commentary around that and, and they have standardized on either Azure or AWS. Mm-hmm. And we provide services and value-added support for both. Mm-hmm. But um, I see Azure actually gaining a lot of attention, much more this year than last year. AWS just continues to steamroll the industry and get bigger and bigger. And yeah. Bezos, you know, smiles as he sails away on his $400 million yacht, you know, <laughs> look it up. It's a great Google search for you, $400 million yacht. Wow. But yeah, <laughs> but I, I do think the, the cloud will con- just continue to, to uh, grow yeah. and there's no stopping that. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, even with the the offerings that that it gives any you know startup, you know, now you're getting you know the offerings of like artificial intelligence and just different things and capabilities right at your fingertips. So it's like mm-hmm. now as you're as you're thinking about ideas or apps or solving problems, um, that you know now this kind of stuff's at your fingertips and and kind of the way that I view it, like you know you know I mentioned the those three, but they all seem to be pretty much offering the same thing, just kind of using their own language uh, that kind of has the same offerings. But I think probably AWS being the front runner, right, has, uh, I think, you know, more offerings that that are going, you know, through their cloud platform, which is just pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on when, um, like when you hear Gary V talking about the Alexa skills and things like that and how that would apply, uh, trying to get, you know, that, do you see uh, anything anything there coming down the road? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Consumer electronic products like Alexa, um, I don't know if they're going to pierce the corporate veil, but there's still hundreds of millions of homes out there that don't have Alexa in it yet. So there's this, uh, the great Amazon hack is coming, I predict, right? So at some point, someone's going to be able to figure out how to get in there and we're all going to shutter and throw our Alexas away, <laughs> but uh, our echoes, I should say. Yeah. But I, and that probably, I don't know, they had a lot of encryption out there. I think we're probably safe, but mm, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think Amazon is uh, dominating. I mean, there's, there's uh, friends that work at both all, all the big tech companies actually. And, and Amazon, uh, my Amazon buddies have some interesting commentary, but it's, I think it's a matter of, of, you know, depending on where you're coming from and what products you're rolling out and what platforms you're on, you really have to standardize and, and know your know your platform, know your audience, know where you're pushing your products into. I don't know if skills development is where I'd be right now in terms of, cons- and it depends though, there's just so many people building so many things out there, right? So I don't want to discourage anyone. If you have some amazing visionary ideas on how to build an Alexa skill, go for it, you know, test it out. Yeah. But um, for me, the money's elsewhere. You know, the, the movement is elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome stuff. Yeah. I, I tell you, like, you know, the stuff on the tech side I could talk about that for hours. And uh it's just an amazing thing. And um when I when I see it all, it's just like, okay, you know, taking that and based on what you're focused on and putting together your own mashup to, to provide something in a better way uh to service your customers. Um it's just a great thing for sure. Man, John, I really appreciate your time here today. And uh, yeah, you really, one of the things that I didn't expect, which I really enjoyed was, you know, the stuff centered around the emotional intelligence and things like that. It's just so powerful. And I think for the audience listening, 
Um, you know, I, you know, I'd say really, you know, deep dive into that. And I, and I like how, you know, it sounds like you made that investment, you know, working with the neuroscientists, applying it to tech and business. Um, that's powerful. I, I don't think, you know, there's been, there haven't been that many people that have, that have done that. And I think that's what separates, uh, separates you and your book from, from many others. So for the audience, I say definitely check it, check it out for sure. But I want to give you a chance to leave some closing remarks with the audience. So I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Brian. Uh, closing remarks. Well, I would just uh, quote from the book on uh, page 172, talking about uh, flow and expertise. Uh, Niels Bohr, the Danish physicist who helped to invent the nuclear weapon, uh, an expert is a person who has made all the mistakes that can be made in a very narrow field. That's an expert. And so pounding the pavement in your very narrow field is probably the best advice I can give anyone is really sticking to that that place where you live, that, that, that neighborhood of thought, and it really owning that and stamping your name on it. Uh, that's what I'm doing at least. That's awesome. Thanks, Sean. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Tech Money Talks podcast. It's officially sponsored by Spotify and Anchor FM. Be on the fast track to starting your own business. You can work with me personally. It's my dropship funnels done for you service. I work with you one-on-one to build your own store and get your very own sales fast in dropshipping. You can go to dropshipfunnels.com to find out more information.